Welcome to Scordatura. My name's Holly Matheson. I'm a conductor, occasional writer and erstwhile academic living in Scotland and trying to better understand this weird and wonderful classical music business in which I work. Join me as I ask some annoying questions, interview the most fascinating people you've probably never heard of, and try to better my own professional practice by learning from the wisdom of others. Today is the summer solstice 2019. I'm sitting in a lovely little 18th century cottage which uh, forms part of a gorgeous old um, manor and estate in the Cotswolds looking out over freshly mown grass on the paddocks with my large mug of Earl Grey tea. It's beautiful, centuries-old copses of trees and things. So far this morning I've seen wild hares, some herons flying low over the paddocks, dragonflies. It's absolutely quintessential chocolate box England. Though, of course, you can probably also hear the hum of the M40 not far off because... This is England, and and this is reality after all. Now, why, you might ask, am I here? Well, at this time of year, most of Britain's conductors, singers and pianists find themselves involved in the summer opera festivals out in the big country opera houses. And this year, I'm at Garsington, assisting someone who is, well, he's a lovely, lovely human being, first of all, but also a fantastic conductor, Richard Farnes. I'm assisting him on Benjamin Britten's Turn of the Screw. So far, so establishment. However, down the road in High Wycombe, a completely different type of project is underway. And it's actually there that I would really like to draw your focus. It's a beautiful project, a beautiful thing, led by New Zealand soprano Joanne Rawton arnold And is the first in a series of a few episodes I'm going to do in which I'll explore the now very well-trodden paths of access, engagement and diversity. Don't cringe, because I'll be doing it from a completely different and sometimes challenging and surprising perspective. Well, I hope that's what I'm going to do. I had a rotten cold on the day, you can probably hear the trails of it now. Also, thanks to Richard Farns, who's the one thing I'm not pleased I picked up from him this month. So please forgive me for sounding a little bit like uh, a walking corpse. Joe and her husband Paul had just bought home a new puppy, Phoebe, who makes her presence known at one point as well. So uh, listen out for the little puppy whines near the end of the podcast. First of all, tell us about your position in Formidability. Who are you? I hold several positions. I'm one of the two directors who founded the company. I'm the producer, and I also sing. And your your first performance is at the Arcola with the Grindbourne Festival. 
you're doing Schoenberg's Piero Lunier, which a lot of people know, and also a less known work. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that piece? Sure. Um, Hotspur by Dame Gillian Whitehead and Fleur Adcock. It's the first work that these two amazing New Zealand artists created together back in, I think, 1980. It's set in 14th century Northumberland. And it tells the story of Henry Percy, who the Scottish um, army gave the nickname of Hotspur to. But it tells the story through his wife's eyes. So I'm singing Elizabeth, and she's seeing her husband go off to battle constantly, seeing him be very successful, but she's always got this nagging fear that something really terrible is going to happen. Fleur calls it the dark tide that's threatening to engulf them. Our collaboration with Sign Dance Collective International opens up an amazing new possibility. Isolde Vila is going to also be playing the role of, of Elizabeth, but portraying her through sign dance and expressing her inner consciousness. So the two, you have the two of us on stage at being the same character, but you see two different facets going on simultaneously. That's fantastic. I mean, that's every kind of theatre practitioner's dream isn't it to yep. be able to show the subtext very literally exactly um, at the same time exactly and because she's she's signing the libretto as in real and live as I sing it so the text is being communicated very very clearly to anyone with a hearing impairment but the whole audience sees this incredibly beautiful movement that is so expressive and it doesn't matter that if you don't read sign language you'll still get what it's all saying. In terms of this being a first project for uh, for mid-ability and sign dance to collaborate on, it's kind of an ideal piece in many ways. What about uh, the Schoenberg? Why, why that pairing? Well, we were looking for something that would balance, that would work and complement Hotspur. It was Scott Wilson's idea, our, our music director. Pierre Lunaire is an incredibly iconic work. It's well known. Um, it, we hope it will draw people in, curious to see what our approach is, um, because we aren't just performing it as a concert performance, as it's so often done. We have David Bauer, who is going to be portraying Piero the Clown as I sing. We're going to be, he's going to interact with me. He's going to interact with the instrumentalists. David is actually deaf. But he can, he's, his, his performances are incredibly compelling. And we're going to have little subtle visual cues that will give him the clue for when to move onto the, the new section. For me, if I were going to do Piero in any other way, it would be to use a mime artist rather yeah. than a singer. That seems the perfect way because Absolutely. it's... It's meta-symbolic, do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's yeah, it is. The way Schoenberg writes is kind of an abstraction from the sung voice. Yeah, that's exactly and it, and that's exactly what David's doing. David's actually co-choreographing the work with Sarah Brody, our director, one of New Zealand's leading directors and choreographers. So the two of them are working in tandem on this. David is using a lot of mime, so it's not so much literal sign language as such as he is miming what is being described in this incredibly colourful poetry that features throughout the work. 
the other links, we, we, interesting links we found with um, the parent with Hotspur, and there's a very simple practical one. Both works have five instrumentalists and a singer. The instrumentation is very, very similar, so there's only a little change between the two works and, and who will be on stage in the ensemble. The ensemble will be on stage. There is no pit at the Arcola Theatre, so they're going to be very visible and they're going to be used in the staging. There's a, a nice little thematic link in the form of the moon in between both works. It's very obvious in Piero Lunaire that so much of the poetry refers to the moon in all sorts of different ways, taking on a character. Um, well, there's one point, like one that I find very funny, where Piero he sees it when he thinks there's a spot of plaster on his coat and it's the moonlight and he's trying desperately to rub it off and it won't go away and he gets very frustrated by this. In, in Hotspur, there's a lot of reference to the harvest moon, that this is a time that, that is very key in the whole play, or rather the, the, the poetry that, that Fleur Adcock wrote. There are going to be some banners in Hotspur which are taken from illustrations by Gretchen Olbrecht, a, one, a, a wonderful New Zealand artist who's very, very well known internationally. She illustrated Fleur's original booklet of the libretto of Hotspur. So we're taking some of these illustrations, turning them into large banners to hang during the show and light at different times when they're appropriate for different moments of the story. And there is a beautiful one of the moon. So of course that's going to be a nice link in our staging with Pierre Lunaire in the second half. The usual scenario is that creative practitioners, orchestras, opera companies, ballet companies, devise performances and then add accessibility engagement, learning with kids, etc., sort of as afterthoughts, albeit really well-meant ones. How does formidability differ from that? What, what's your approach and how, how are we going to see or hear or feel accessibility in the kind of creative fabric of the project? Well, we're turning that whole, the usual process on its head and we're putting the accessibility at the heart of the, our creative process. So we're giving it equal value with the production as a whole. We're finding ways so that the accessible elements are not just something practical to help you out and understand the artistic um, intentions of the director, the music director, the composer and so on, and, and the artist on stage. What we're doing is putting the accessibility front and centre, so in particular for deaf people in the audience, by using Sign Dance Collective International, by collaborating with them, the signing becomes integral to the production. It's not just something, someone on the edge of the stage standing still and signing. It's someone taking on a role of their own in the production, also signing or miming in a way that makes it really clear for anyone with a visual impairment what everyone else is hearing, but it also makes something really beautiful that anybody can appreciate and find enhances the whole experience, doesn't matter whether disabled or not. You know, opera is all about telling a story that has really big emotions, a character feeling an emotion so strongly that they have to sing. There's just no other way around it. Sign dance takes sign language and makes it big and expressive and beautiful and as a way of expressing this incredibly emotional story in a way that someone with a hearing impairment can understand and appreciate. And 
2015, you commissioned Gillian Whitehead's Iris Dreaming, so same composer, and Fleur Adcock did the libretto as well, yes, so a new right. piece, world premiere, and that was funded by Creative New Zealand, wasn't it? The, the initial commission was funded by Creative New Zealand, and then the world premiere was funded by Arts Council England and several fantastic organisations in the New Zealand community in London, the New Zealand Society, the New Zealand Studies Network, um, and numerous very, very lovely private donors who helped us make it all happen. That was fantastic. And um, you worked with John Hargreaves, an octonal ensemble, one of London's premier new music ensembles and yeah. conductors. What did you learn from that process as a producer and solo artist, because that was a one-woman opera as well? What did you learn from that process that you're bringing into this project? That was my first time producing. So the learning curve was like this. It was so steep. It was... Yeah, it was extraordinary. I, I, I learned about fundraising. I learned about the practicalities of making a production happen, all the finickety little details that you have to get right to make sure everything runs smoothly. Artistically, it was a joy, a challenge, the most exhilarating experience to be, first of all, receiving a score for something that wouldn't have existed had I not had this crazy germ of an idea of commissioning a one-woman opera and then got the funding. I felt like a kid at Christmas every time Gillian sent me a little, a new section of the score. And I confessed to shedding a few tears when I was reading through what she'd written for me. Then the process of rehearsing as the only singer in a production is incredibly intensive. And I was going into it thinking, I know I've got a healthy vocal technique. I'm gonna to have to call on everything I've got to make this work. And it did, six hours a day in the rehearsal room and it was completely fine. Very intensive when you've got the conductor and the director giving you notes almost simultaneously <laughs> and you just have to keep a cool head, take notes, do everything you're being asked to do. Um, I loved it, absolutely thrived on it. So going into this production, I'm pushing myself further. I'm pushing the boundaries further. Starting a company rather than doing it completely on my own, albeit with some wonderful... I had, I had support when I did live streaming, but now I'm formalising that into a company. This is a bigger project. We're bringing in more artists. I don't want to be a one-woman show. We've got these incredible dancers from Sign Dance Collective International joining us. We've got Sarah Brody directing again, who also directed Iris Dreaming, so I'm thrilled to be continuing that collaboration with her. We've got a conductor I hadn't worked with before, Scott Wilson, fantastic young Australian conductor with a real passion for new music and 20th century music. And he's putting together a great ensemble of players to, to cover this music. That's the puppy in the background. She's the company mascot. <laughs> <laughs> this has got challenges both for me as a producer and, and, and it's, it's on a larger scale. So we have more money to raise and more facets to coordinate, plus all the accessibility elements for the audience, but also making sure that the personal access needs of those of us with disability are taken care of. And it's really, really crucial so that everybody can do their best work and have a level playing field with any able, able-bodied artists. I mean, it kind of strikes me that this is like a little Petri dish yeah. test case to see in an ideal world run by people who have mixed abilities mm -hmm. what works. Yeah. And that then becomes kind of something that you can use to advise the wider arts community, which is amazing, Absolutely. rather than it coming in the other direction. Yeah, yeah. This wasn't planned. But when we did our research and development, 
in March and as part of our evaluation process I asked each member of the team to indicate anonymously whether they classed themselves as having some kind of disability or long-term health issue or not or preferred not to say and it came out as a perfectly even split between disabled, non-disabled and a little bit for for not preferring not to stay so that's the balance is amazing. You've been a pro-violinist. Where did you train for that? I, well, I came to the UK to study the violin and, and yes, get a career going as a, as a violinist. I came to study privately with a wonderful Hungarian teacher in Oxford called Kato Havas. Um, and then I went to Trinity College of Music in London and I did a postgraduate year there. And you've ob- ob- been, obviously, you're a singer as well. Talk to us about your, you sang with a number of UK's, you know, professional opera companies. Yeah. What, what's your training been in opera? When, how did that change? Well, when I came over to the UK, I had no idea that I had any real professional vocal potential. That was a lovely, delightful discovery. I had something inside me that I want, I want to sing. I had a few lessons with a housemate in New Zealand who was a singer, but I never took it seriously. I never imagined it could be something that I could actually do professionally. So when I came to the UK and I was studying the violin, I was very focused on the violin. That was all I wanted to do. And when I got to Trinity and there was a chance to do a second study, I thought, this is a chance. You know, grab the chances, the opportunities that come along in life. Don't have what ifs in your head. So I went to the head of vocal studies, said I would really like to take singing as a second study. She said, fine. So I was sent to Esther Salomon, who was a wonderful teacher um, then in her 80s so no longer coming into college and I had to go out to her lovely eccentric studio and I get lessons. That's the best thing about weird old music teachers yeah. is the strange yeah. places you have to go and see them for lessons. Absolutely. She had a tree stump in the middle of her studio with ivy growing across it. Of course she did. Of course, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. She had a singer's platform that you had to stand on um, yeah. so that she could see with the right, a little higher angle on the piano. <laughs> it was gorgeous. And how was it for you getting into the mainstream opera world and dealing with your sight impairment? How was it working with directors and did, did you tell anyone that you had an impairment? Well, when I, one of the reasons that I actually decided to switch professionally from violin to singing was partly because I just got such a kick out of the text that you get to play with as, as a singer. Having language, I've always been fascinated by, by language. I was also finding as a violinist that it's really difficult as a string player in an orchestra with a visual impairment because you have to share a stand. As a student, um, when I was at Trinity College of Music, I could read the page nearest to me, but the other page would be too far out of focus for me to be able to see, and I couldn't get close enough because of having a desk partner sharing the stand, and that the instrument sticks out in front of you. You can only get so close before your bow bangs into the music stand. So I would memorise everything I couldn't see in rehearsals. And as a student, that works because you might have a month of rehearsals before a concert. And, I, and if the conductor was working with, say, the wind, I would just lean over and check the bit that I couldn't see. Was that a natural or a sharp? Because to me, they look the same. Unless <laughs> I'm really close, and that's quite crucial. <laughs> so I, um, I, yeah, I cope like that. But when you get down to the profession, and you've got maybe one rehearsal on the day of a concert, and then the concert, that just doesn't work anymore. As a singer, you haven't got that problem. And I, and I went into singing, perhaps naively thinking, oh, it'll be really easy, it'll be great, it'll be fine, because I don't have to read music and when, I, as I, when I'm performing. Um, or if I am, I can hold it where I need it to see. So when I was at Birmingham Conservatoire doing my postgraduate, doing my master's in voice, 
the, when I came to finish the course, I was given a, a lovely reference which explained what I've done in college as a soloist, as a, as a member of ensembles, dancing, moving on stage, negotiating scenery, etc., etc., never being a danger to myself or others, minimal extra te technical time. And the advice given was that when I went to audition for opera companies professionally, I should do my audition because no one can tell looking at me that I have a visual impairment. And then at the end, just say, by the way, no big deal, but I'm partially sighted and here's a reference to assure you I'm not any kind of risk. And unfortunately, the reaction was usually embarrassment from the panel and no work. Mm. So I stopped saying anything. And then I got my first work with Opera Holland Park and singing in the chorus with them. And I sang in the chorus with them for five seasons. I was a young artist and I had a, a small role in the, one of their main productions. I kept my visual impairment secret for four of those seasons because I was terrified that if I was to let it on, then maybe I wouldn't get asked back or maybe I wouldn't get opportunities that I felt I really wanted to progress my career. I did keep it secret and it wasn't until in the fourth season when the RNIB, the Royal National Institute of Blind People, were running a workshop in conjunction with Opera Holland Park for visually impaired children. The RNIB said to me, we know that you're keeping your visual impairment quiet, but we'd love you to be involved in running this workshop or helping on the workshop with these children. How do you feel about speaking to Opera Holland Park about your situation? I think it was quite close to the time of the Paralympics in London and it felt like attitudes were changing. So I had a quiet conversation with the assistant producer at Opera Holland Park and I said, you know, I've been speaking to James at the RNIB and he'd really like me to be involved in this workshop and, and I said I've had a lot to do with them as a client and she looked at me with a surprised look at her face and I said because I'm partially sighted. Figuratively speaking the door hit the floor <laughs> and you know and I explained that I've never I'd never said anything because I was afraid of people making two and two make five and make assumptions that I would be a risk. You know I said to her I've I've climbed up two meter high scaffolding on stage, I've carried light of candles on stage, I haven't fallen off the stage or set fire to the theatre, so, so <laughs> I felt that I'd sort of earned my stripes. <laughs> and the Upper Holland Park were fantastic, absolutely brilliant. They got me involved straight away in, in, in helping with this workshop. And the following year, I, I ran the workshop, the, the equivalent one. So it was just lovely to be able to be more open. Before that, in rehearsals, I was always trying to hide my visual impairment. So you get tricky situations, like I can't tell if someone's trying to make eye contact with me unless they're very close. And quite often a director won't use names of the singers that he's working with or he or she is working with, will just kind of point to you or look at you if you're a member of a chorus and ask you to do a particular task. And I didn't, wouldn't know if they were asking me to do it or the person next to me. And you can imagine the embarrassment that that has potential of causing. <laughs> you don't want to either be anything like you're hanging back and not grabbing opportunities and not willing and not wanting to really engage or just trying to elbow your way forward and be at the front and take on all the roles. And I mean, it's absolute pure luck that you were with Holland Park at yeah. that point because of all of the opera companies. My goodness, they're so open-minded. The, really the whole, are. I mean, that's where we, you and I met. Yeah. But they have always made a point of having a, a chorus that genuinely reflects, you know, really tries to reflect the population. So Absolutely. mixed race, mixed ages. Yes. Which gets overlooked so often. Very much so. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
and you you were not the only person with a disability no, in that chorus. I wasn't, and I know I wasn't the only person yeah. keeping it secret either. Yeah. And, you know, um, but the, the camaraderie and the support within the chorus was fantastic. So yeah. people, if you if someone knew that you that you did have have some kind of an issue, they were fabulous at just helping you through that and making it clear, make, so that the audience would never have known. So, yeah. and the first my first year we were doing Carmen, and I had to get looked like I was being dragged on by the hair. And my lovely colleague and very dear friend would, as we were as we were going down these stone steps, would just quietly say, "Step, step," to me, Amazing. <laughs> so I just wouldn't fall flat in my face. Amazing. <laughs> You've gathered a fantastic team of collaborators. Tell us about them. You've got Sarah Brody. Yes, Sarah Brody is one of New Zealand's leading um, directors and choreographers. And she's doing more and more work over here in the UK as well, which I'm delighted about because that makes her more available for formidability. And who do you have doing the sign dance for you? So we have Sign Dance Collective International and we have their two directors, which is Azult Avila and David Bauer. Um, Azult is um, physically disabled. She is hearing. She signs fluently, does beautiful, beautiful dance. She trained, I think, with Cuban ballet. David is an actor and performance artist and probably most well known to the general public for his role in Four Weddings and a Funeral. David's also recently, he was on Radio 4 as Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame and I listened to that and it was just so compelling. And who do you have conducting? Our conductor, our music director is Scott Wilson, who's a young Australian conductor based in London with a real flair and passion for contemporary music and works of the 20th century. So I'm really excited to be working with him for the first time. The other person I'm interested to know about is what's happening with the audio description. Mm. Now, this is fascinating that someone would want audio description for an audio event. How does that work? What What is described to them? That's a really good question. Um, audio description is traditionally literally just describing what is visually happening and, and it can be and it can be quite dry. I have come across um, Nathan Gearing and his rationale method of audio description which he's developed and this is a way of making audio description really exciting and something that really reflects the energy and the ethos and emotion of the production and he or his team of audio describers will do it in different ways depending on what is right for the production. So in some productions, they'll actually use beatbox techniques to describe a movement because that is a really quick way. If you hear someone go, you've immediately got an idea of the way they might be moving their arms. Other, other ways that where the user is using really poetic language. And that's the direction I think we're going to go in with this production. Creating language that is really beautiful and artistic and interesting and expressive in its own right beyond just describing a practical movement. Yeah, it's gonna be very interesting. They'll come into our rehearsals and treat it a little bit like some research and development to work out what is the right approach for our production. And we'd like to get some visually impaired people to come and watch and see what works for them because they're the, they're the people who we're doing this for. You have more than a couple of Antipodeans on the team, Sarah. Yes. Scott, myself on the board, yeah. and I'm I'm often coming across Antipodeans doing extraordinary projects. I don't think I'm crazy for saying that. 
usually in quite a chilled, pragmatic fashion. <laughs> Do you think there's something culturally that allows us to say yes to things that many others would put in the too hard or too bonkers basket, or where something doesn't exist, we just decide to build it? I think there is. I think there's something about being on that bit of the world that's on most maps is on right on the edge. Sometimes it's not even there. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, that just makes us punch above our weight, you know, yeah. particularly, I mean, New Zealand is a small, small country. Australians are, you know, they're, they're obviously our, our larger neighbour. But I think we do have this in common, this, this kind of ability to, to kind of think outside the box and be really adventurous um, and take, yeah, take, taking, yeah, taking that kind of, I, I don't know whether it comes from, pioneering spirit or not but but just we we yeah we, we're not yeah. I don't think we feel quite so constrained by traditions and expectations perhaps yeah, yeah yeah I find that often I think about this that um first of all in terms of European artistic tradition in New Zealand it's very very short yeah. but also that we're so unbelievably lucky yeah. to have access to and an insight from the Māori and Pacific Arts yeah. creative communities. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I just love so much about Julian Whitehead's music. Her sound, sound world is unmistakably New Zealand. There's this, this the way she blends European mm-hmm. traditions with Māori, with nature, with, you know, it's all extraordinary. I mean, Hotspur is, is a more European work yeah. because of the nature of the story because of where it's set but when she wrote Iris Dreaming for me she included Tonga Puaro the, the, the Maori traditional instruments in the scoring having the, the cellist pick up a, sto- a pair of stones and just tap them in his hand while he mm. changed, changed the shape of the hand to change the colour um, having a, a rain stick to um, which is not a specific Maori instrument but having a rain stick that would that sound exactly like waves pulling at pebbles on the beach yeah at the yeah. end um so and then and other works i've sung of hers where the singer is literally in the mimic, mimicking bird song from native music mm. bird song and the other thing i just adore about her writing is that she tells sto- the story through the the writing the rhythm the melody the, the orchestration and the texture she writes music which can be can be challenging for the singer for the instrumentalist but it's never challenging for being challenging, say it's never, never trying to be clever. It's mm. everything is there to be expressive and tell the story. And she has a long relationship with Fleur as yeah. a librettist. And this is a helps. lovely kind of circle: is that Iris Dreaming is the last thing that they've, the latest thing they've written together. Well, not as the last, it's the latest <laughs> from twenty sixteen. And Hotspur is their very first collaboration from after they just they met when they were both artists in residence at uh, Northern Arts. That's cool. What do you see in the future for Formidability as a company? I want to see Formidability grow. I want to see in terms of, both in terms of the kind of work that we do and the the people involved in in our work. I'd like to take this production and tour it and reach reach more people and show what you can do. That, that, That artists who are really high caliber, just happen to have a disability, can create really great art, just the same way as we are all astounded by the incredible sporting achievements of Paralympians in, in the sporting arena. You know, no one, no one, no one looks at a 
Paralympic athlete and, and goes, oh, but they're in a wheelchair. You know, artists mm-hmm. are the same. What it takes to spread that message, I'd like us to commission new work or look at what um, standard repertoire could we try applying this approach to. We need to start small scale. We can't, we can't go from a, a cast of three to a cast of thousands. <laughs> but I'd like, it to, I'd like it to sensibly, gradually grow and to share our approach with a wider profession and see whether other companies would be interested in working with us. For any artist self-producing in the arts, we're caught between trying to plan responsibly for the future growth and creative longevity that you've talked about, mm-hmm. while at the same time exhausting all of our energies and financial resources, physical resources, mental health resources on the project to hand to create something worthwhile. Now, the budget for this is massive, and you're a producer, singer, and chief fundraiser, <laughs> among many other things. How do you balance those two things in your head, bringing this specific project to fruition and trying to build a sort of a bedrock formidabilities future? That's a really good question. It's hard. I, I would really dearly like to have another 12 hours a day, please. If anyone could arrange that, that would be lovely. I just, I'm trying to, I kind of have to compartmentalise and I have to say to myself, okay, at this time of day, I'm focusing on singing. This is, this is my time to really bed in what I'm going to be doing on stage and make, make sure it's the best I can possibly do. Because if it's not, we shouldn't be doing this at all. That's yeah. the whole reason for doing it, is creating really beautiful work that's going to move people. But then I've got to, uh, when, I've, when I've done that singing practice, then I have to switch to my producer hat and I'm sitting at that computer and I'm writing and writing and writing many, many, many funding applications. I think for our Arts Council one, I spent a fortnight over Easter working about 12 hours a day, give or take, <laughs> um, because it is just a mammoth thing to do and to do right. I've, I've, I felt the weight of it, the pressure on my shoulders to make this happen. And then, of course, I've written to 70 trusts and foundations <laughs> to ask for their support as well. I, I think it's about, yeah, it's about staying calm, staying focused, staying in the moment, which might sound like a cliche, but actually it's what you have to do as an artist on stage. You can't be on stage giving your best if you're worried about what you're going to do tomorrow. Yes. Uh, or what yeah. you didn't do this morning. Yeah. Or, or that five bars ago wasn't perfect. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's all about creating it in the here and now. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really learning to do that um, and, you know, and balancing that with, earning the bread and butter and doing my my other work, singing, teaching the violin, and performances. Yeah, touring with Paralympics, touring, touring with Paralympics. <laughs> amongst other things. Yes, the week, the week um, before Formidability was incorporated, I was in Australia for a week performing with Para Orchestra. On our opening night, I got the email from Arts Council England to say that they were funding our research and development, which was going to start a fortnight later. The day I got back from... Well, the week I got back from Australia was the week formidability was incorporated. So and everything kicked off. <laughs> and it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's one thing we can all apply for funding for putting a, a gig on. Yeah. But there is no one give, supporting or giving funding for the work of administering, administrating, of, of running yeah, exactly. these companies. You can put a, a percentage of that into yeah. an Arts Council budget and, and for a number of other... Um, mm. Trusts and foundations will allow you to put a, a certain amount in, but 
to get, it's really difficult to get that initial sort of cushion of money to make it happen. You know, I, for formidability, we need the website. So I've built the website. Yeah. Um, I designed the logo so we didn't have to spend money asking a graphic designer to do that. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard. It's really, it's really, really hard. And, you know, when, what I'd love to be doing is putting that energy into the actual creating the, the artistry, the artistic work. You've been listening to me, Holly Matheson, soprano Joe Rorton-Arnold, pianist James Creeling, excerpts from Gillian Whitehead and Fleur Adcock's Hotspur, and Arnold Schoenberg and Albert Giraud's Pierre Lunaire. Thanks to Universal Edition for letting us record a little bit in rehearsal, producer Heather Allen, to music director Scott Wilson and director Sarah Brody.